please turn to the book of Ruth. We need to, to finish up this little Old Testament book. We're going to be covering the last eight verses of Ruth. So Ruth chapter 4, verses 14 through 22. And in the Pew Bible below the seats, you can find this on page 223. Now last Sunday, as we made our way through the first two-thirds of Ruth, we saw how God brought things together for Boaz and Ruth and how he brought them together not only in marriage, but then he blessed them against what seems like all logical odds with a child. Boaz was older before this. Ruth had been barren for 10 years in a marriage, and, and yet now they have this little baby And now in this passage, in this morning's text, as we close Ruth, the book of Ruth, we will see how things are brought together by God for one of the other main characters in the book, Naomi. So this is God's word, Ruth 4, verses 14 through 22. (coughs) Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is God's word for his people. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. And now let's pray for his help in these things. Oh, great, gracious, and holy God, we thank you for your word and how you use it to supply what we need to increase our awe of you, our glorious, saving God. Father, we come before you, as we always do, in need, in need of more of you, in need of strength, in need of faith. Father, use your word to provide what only you can do. Nourish us. Remind us of the gospel Refresh us in your word. Father, I pray for our brothers and sisters here who are struggling this week, who have had a very difficult week, who who maybe come to worship you this morning struggling with their sin. Remind them that your grace is greater than their sin, that you have provided a way, you have provided a way in your son to cover their sin. and, And as Christians, you have dealt with their sin at the cross. Free them from the shame that they may be wrestling with. Remind them of your love and your goodness and your mercy in Christ. Free them from the grips of the sin that they're enslaved to. And Father, we pray for the, the Christian who has had a good week. Father, we pray that you would fan the flame of their faith, that, that you would increase their worship of you, that the work that you have begun, you would continue in their life this week and that the preaching of your word would help them do that. Father, we pray for those struggling physically. Father, we lift them up to you. May their suffering, may their struggle, may their their disease, their, their physical ailment be a vessel, a vehicle for you to be glorified. Keep them fixed on Jesus and the promises that you give to them in Christ. 
Father, we confess that we are prone to look outside of you for joy, for peace, for hope. And we pray that you would help us be corrected this morning, that you would remind us of the gospel. Lord, we're so thankful for your word this morning. We do ask that you are with those who are experiencing great hardship and suffering because of the hurricane. Lord, may this hurricane be remind, a reminder to so many of the, the fleeting nature of our lives, that we are but grass, that, that, that our lives are, are fleeting, that they're, they're quick and they, they're over soon, sooner than we realize. And may you use this hurricane to draw people to the hope that is only found in Christ. And may your church in Florida and around those surrounding areas be used at this time to proclaim the gospel boldly. Yes, caring for physical needs, and may we partner as you lead us in in that work. But we pray even more that your church, your people, would provide for people's spiritual needs. Point them to Jesus. Proclaim the gospel, we pray, through your church. And now, Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of... The first chapter of Ruth, when Naomi arrives in Israel after returning from Moab, she says to the women of Bethlehem, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? At that point in her life, Naomi was bitter towards God, and she publicly questioned God's goodness because her husband and her two sons died while the family was in self-exile in Moab trying to avoid the Lord's discipline. Figuratively speaking, God had emptied her hands. She went away full and the Lord brought her back to Israel empty. However, at the end of Ruth chapter 4, we find that Naomi is no longer empty Her hands are figuratively and literally full because she's holding this cute little baby boy in her hands named Obed. And it's not just a cute little boy. It's her grandson. Against all odds, this widow who had no hope of her family line continuing, we find there's hope. There's a redeemer. He is a surprising gift to Naomi. And like most first-time grandparents, it seems that looking at her grandchild has left Naomi speechless. So this time, Naomi doesn't explain her situation. She doesn't share what's on her mind like she did in Ruth 1. Instead, in Ruth 4, it's the women of Bethlehem. Maybe, think about this, even some of the same women that she had instructed to call her Mara, call her bitter, who give us a commentary, who explain Naomi's situation, saying to her in Ruth 4, 14 and 15, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So God gave Naomi a redeemer, one who would restore her life. Naomi goes from empty to full, from bitter to blessed. It is a great and glorious reversal. And who's behind it all? Who's behind it all? The emptying and the filling, the bitterness and the blessing. Behind it all is the sovereign, almighty God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We see that in the end of Ruth, chapter 4. 
So for this reason, though the details of Naomi's testimony will differ from the details of our testimony, in a sense, every Christian can say that God has brought about a great reversal for them like he did for Naomi, a glorious reversal. God has given us a Redeemer who has restored our lives, bringing about a grand and glorious reversal. We have gone from empty to full, from bitter to blessed. And what has brought this about? By God's sovereign hand, the emptiness of our sin is filled by the riches of his glorious grace. There's this pattern of redemption from Genesis 3 on that God has promised to redeem his people. He will send a redeemer. And we see these glimpses and these these foreshadowings of that happening over and over and over again, moving things forward all the way to Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, 7 through 11, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So church, because it was God's sovereign plan, Jesus Christ took and drank the bitter cup of our sin. And in its place, God has put into our hands the cup of blessing that Jesus Christ earned for all who trust in him. And and that's what we celebrated last Sunday when we celebrated the Lord's Supper together. Jesus drank the bitter cup. And God has given us the blessed cup because of his great saving work. Church, we were once empty and bitter like Naomi. But because of the gospel, because God the Father sent his son, and his son Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, then made atonement satisfying God's just wrath against our sin, reconciling us to God. We who are saved by God's grace are filled with the spirit of God. That's what he's done. He's given us us his spirit. He's brought us into the kingdom of heaven and blessed us with an inheritance earned for us by Christ. Friend here today who is not a Christian, it is our hope that you too will experience this great and glorious reversal. That the bitterness of your sin, because it is bitter. If you're not a Christian, you've tasted the bitterness of your sin. You see it every time you look out and see what's going on in the world. You feel it. And yet our hope is that the bitterness of your sin will be filled by God's love, his peace, and the forgiveness of of your sins that only comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God has done a marvelous work today. If you're not a Christian and you're here, he's brought you to a place where you get to hear about Jesus. You get to hear about the marvelous thing that God has done for sinners, reversing the course of their destiny, pouring out the riches of his glorious grace in Christ to bring about redemption. And so we plead, we, we urge, we, we ask you to consider this great thing that God has done and to consider the gospel and to trust in Christ today. Don't waste it. Don't delay in this opportunity that God has given you. Trust in Jesus. Now it's possible that someone might hear all of this, that God will fill our emptiness and turn our bitterness into blessing 
and think that if, if they just trust in God, well, then God will fix their problems and make their life better. After all, when Naomi turned to God, as evidenced by her return to Israel, well, God blessed her. She experienced all these blessings that were physical, tangible, and material. But in Naomi, we don't find an argument for your best life now. She's not an example for the prosperity preacher to hold out before us and say, just believe like Naomi, and if you do, well, everything will get better for you. You'll have a happy life. You'll get married to a good husband or wife. You'll have two well-behaved kids and live in a big house, and you'll have a nice retirement, and, and you'll be blessed with 20 grandkids. That's not the lesson that we learn in Naomi. The lesson we learn in the book of Ruth and from Naomi and others in the book of Ruth is not that everything's going to be great and easy for God's people. That's not her story. You look at her life. It wasn't easy. Because of the great reversal God brought about for Naomi, God didn't take away the heartache and the loss that she experienced. The author of Ruth doesn't pretend that Naomi's redemption took away the pain that she went through and the ongoing sorrow that she would have felt over her husband and two sons' deaths. The book of Ruth doesn't say, trust in the Lord and you won't experience suffering or heartache or face tragedy. Rather, what we learn from the book of Ruth and in how the book concludes is that God is good. God is really good. And we are not the center of the universe. To say it a different way, it's not all about us and how great we are. It's all about God and how great he is. But here's the thing, friends. From the time that we're born until we die, we're really, really, really good at making everything about us. We're really good at this. In some sense, it's our default view that everything started when we were born and everything will end when we die. I mean, that's, that's our, our, our built-in perception of things. Whoa, we, you know, we start to figure things out. We're a child and we're, you know, this is all here for me. And so what do parents often tell their children who are spoiled and think everything's about them? The world doesn't revolve around you. I've tried to kind of add the gospel to that when I tell my kids that. It revolves around God. You need Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Even after conversion, even after we are, by God's grace, regenerated, brought to life in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are tempted to, and we often try to make everything about us. Think about your family. Why do they exist? I know the biblical answer. I know the, the, the right answer, but, but think about what goes on in your heart when you consider your family. If you're married, your spouse. Why are they there? Why, what's their purpose? Is it for you or for God? Think about work. Why, why is that, that job there? Why is God giving you that job? Is it just for you or is it for a bigger purpose, for his purpose? How about church? Why does the church exist? Is it mainly for you or does God have a, a, a greater and bigger purpose for the church? What about your school, your stuff? We have this propensity of thinking that everything exists for us, that we are the center of the universe. And we live in a time where we're encouraged to carve out our own little world that centers on us. You do you and I'll do me is one of the Ten Commandments of our culture. There's so many avenues that, that make it especially easy to do this. Think about Facebook, where, where we can have our own page and, and post our best selfies that make us look really good to everybody else and, and tell everybody, or at least all of our friends, every day just how great the world is that we've made. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against tools like Facebook or, or Instagram and Twitter. I just want to point out the obvious that for creatures who already struggle with thinking that everything is about us, these tools that can be used for good. I, I love the fact that we can connect with family and friends that, that are not close to us, where we can see pictures of little kids growing up and, and we can get video clips of, of family get-togethers. Oh, it's just wonderful. I also love the fact that, that with these tools, the gospel can go out <laughs> because oftentimes people that would never maybe come to us and ask us a question about Jesus will, will read a, a scripture verse that we post or a quote that we post, or maybe even go to an article that we link to on our Facebook or Instagram or whatever. That's awesome. It's a great way for these things to, to be used for good. However, these good tools or neutral tools can often become trumpets to toot our own horns or megaphones that help us puff up ourselves, encouraging self-worship and reinforcing the lie that we are tempted to believe that it's all about us. We are the center of the universe. Now, I'm not saying that it's all Mark Zuckerberg's fault. He's the guy who created Facebook. Because it's not his fault. It's not on Mark. I believe and affirm the doctrine of sin, that we are born sinners and we choose to sin. This lingering self-centeredness, this tendency to, to think that everything is about us, that we are the center of everything, is a result of the fall. It's been going on over and over. It's not just in this day, not just in this age, not just in this culture. And this, this tendency, this lingering self-focus where we make everything about us will come out in one form or another. It can ooze out of us in so many different ways. In husbands who domineer over their wives seeking to control them and, and not seek to lay down their lives and help them grow and cultivate their gifts, their God-given gifts. It can come out in wives who disrespect their husbands, who undermine their authority in the home. It can come out in parents treating their children like inconveniences, as, as if those children exist to, to expand their kingdom and, and, and make their reputation better among family and friends. It can come out when we get annoyed with the slow driver who's right before us, preventing us from getting where we need to go. Don't they know we have a kingdom to build? That it, this road is our road? Or on the reverse, the, the, the fast driver who is trying to build their kingdom and so they, they pull off and cut in front of us. Hey, don't you know who I am? It can come out in so many different ways, millions of different ways. Our hearts are prone to changing the first question and answer in the Westminster Shorter Confession or Catechism, which is, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever to this. What is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify myself and enjoy myself forever. We're prone to that. And what is the solution to all of this making everything about us? It's not easy. It's, it's not going to be just getting rid of your Facebook account or closing down your Instagram or putting an end to your tweets. Though sometimes, or for a season, those might be good things to consider. Maybe you've just been, been consumed with social media. You, you need to start thinking deeper. You need, you need to dig into the Bible and all these interruptions. You need to snoo, put, hit the snooze on those things for a while. But the real solution, church, is the Bible. To hear what God says and by the Holy Spirit be changed by the word of God. To have our thinking and our living be driven by what the scriptures say, not by what we feel or the culture tells us. 
Because when we read God's word, we hear truths like this that we so desperately need to hear. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. What's that tell me when I read that? The, the earth is, is not Luke's. The world and everything in it, it exists for God. He made it, it's his. Another passage that we'll come across in, in a month or so, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. You read the Bible and there's all these, these scriptures that say it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about God. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When our hearts need a correction, thinking that everything's about us, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Who made it all? Jesus. Why were all things made? For Jesus. Why do I exist? For God. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, the Holy Spirit uses God's word to soften our hearts and correct our thinking so that we view God more and more rightly as we need to see him more glorious than we once thought he was, more supreme, exalted, and bigger than we ever knew. You open the pages of Scripture, and what do you find? An awesome, glorious, big, sovereign God. And in light, there's this conflict that happens every time we open the pages of Scripture. Who's everything about? Me or God? The Scriptures tell me it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about God. Now, don't get me wrong. The Scriptures teach us that we matter. The Gospel makes that sweet truth clear. How do we know that we matter? The cross the sin-atoning death of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb, the, the death-defeating, life-giving resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was all planned out by God to, ensure, to assure us that, that, yes, we matter. It's just that the Bible tells us that as much as we matter, we humans are not the biggest deal. God is. And seeing this over and over and over again in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation and even in Ruth, will help to keep us from making everything about us and cause us to live our lives not for our own glory, but to live our lives for the glory of God and to the glory of God. This wonderful correcting happens every time the word of God goes forth in our hearts. It's all about him. Now, I believe there are at least two helpful ways that this little Old Testament book can teach us that God is good and we are not the center of everything. The first way is subtle and the second is obvious. First, as we've made our way through the book of Ruth, it's become clear that the book of Ruth is not just or mainly or ultimately about people and their stories. It's ultimately about God and his story. One of the ways that the author communicates this in the book of Ruth is, is how he shifts the focus from one person to another person throughout the book. If you want to, you can turn to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. The book starts with the focus being on Elimelech, this man, this, this head of the household who leads his family during a time of famine while the judges ruled in Israel, out from the covenant people of God, away from the promised land, and into Moab, a, a place full of pagans, false worship, there's no, there, there wasn't a church on every block. I mean, there, the church wasn't there. There's a, a, 
There, there was a, a covenant people, a covenant God, and a promised land that he had given to his people. To leave that was to, to go into self-exile. So for, from verses 1 through 2, Elimelech is the focus. But by Ruth 1-3, the third verse, only two verses later, the focus shifts from Elimelech to his wife Naomi with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, playing supporting roles. But then, by the end of Ruth chapter 1, Orpah is completely out of the picture. And Ruth becomes more of a priority. Then in chapters 2 and 3, Naomi moves into the background, playing a supporting role, and Ruth and Boaz step forward. And they take the lead. They take center stage. Boaz then becomes the lead character in most of chapter 4, with Ruth being the leading lady. Then at the close of the book, it's as if Boaz and Ruth take a step backward to let Naomi step forward again with little Obed in her arms. Then the spotlight that is on Naomi and Obed, it narrows from both of them right on baby Obed. But, but it's only for half a verse. Because then the spotlight shifts off of Obed, not back to Elimelech or Naomi or Ruth or Boaz or Obed, but on David who before this isn't mentioned at all in the book. Now, this is not a case of of the Holy Spirit causing the author of Ruth to have ADHD here, all right? This is intentional. It's subtle. It's intentional. And this shift in focus throughout the book of Ruth from one person to another subtly communicates to us that this book is not mainly about a person's story, but about God's story. God is the main character, even when he's behind the scenes, even when we don't see him working, he's there, moving things along according to the counsel of his perfect will. So he's the hero in Ruth. It's not Boaz. He's a good guy, but he's not the hero in Ruth. God is, and and God's the hero in the rest of the scriptures. Pick a book. Ultimately, it's, it's pointing us to God. Though this book has been given the name Ruth, uh, I think a more accurate title for this book might be something like this. A book about the sovereign God who providentially works in the lives of three ordinary people to accomplish his glorious purposes. I know it doesn't fit like kind of in the order. You know, it wouldn't flow. Memorize the books of the Bible, Old Testament. Let's here we go. A book about the sovereign God who providentially... Yeah, I get that. You know, it sounds Puritan-like. It's a bit long, so I guess, I guess Ruth is fine. However, it, it captures what, what's going on in the book. This is a book about the sovereign God who providentially works in the lives of three ordinary people to accomplish his glorious purposes. Well, this brings us to a second, more obvious way that the book of Ruth teaches us that God is good and we are not the center of the universe. It has to do with the genealogy in verses 18 through 22. Now, at first, it might seem a little odd for a story like this to end with a family tree, but it reveals what God was doing behind the scenes of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz's lives. The book of Ruth opens with, in the days when the judges ruled. And then it closes with a genealogy that includes Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and then ends with David, who became one of Israel's greatest and most famous kings. So it starts with no king in Israel, and it ends with, a mention about the coming reign of David, the line of David. The purpose of this genealogy and its ending with David is to link the events of the book 
of Ruth directly to David and his kingly line. This means that behind all of what we read in Ruth, God was providentially at work accomplishing his purposes to provide a king for his people. And here's the thing. Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz had no clue. They never saw it. This side of heaven. This was God's purpose throughout all of these events. God was sovereignly working through the famine that Elimelech fled from and brought his family to Moab because of the tragedy of Naomi's husband and son's death, the struggle that Naomi and Ruth faced as widows, the conversion of Ruth, the protection and provision of Naomi and Ruth by Boaz, the bringing of Boaz and Ruth together as husband and wife, the blessing of a son for Ruth and a grandson for Naomi in Obed. Behind it all, the bad and the good, the suffering and the rejoicing, the bitter and the, bless, the, the blessing, God was carrying out his good and perfect will to establish David's throne in Israel. Were there other purposes? Oh, yes. This is, this is what is so wonderful about Scripture, that we can, we can kind of see, we see that window, and we see, we've looked into this window throughout the book of Ruth. He was providing for a widow, two widows, He was bringing a Moabite into the covenant people of God. A little foretaste of what was to come with the nations coming into the the, the kingdom of heaven. God was doing all of these things. Bringing a godly man and a godly woman together as husband and wife. Blessing a family. Caring for these people. God had tons and tons of purposes. But this, this great and glorious purpose for Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, Obed, was was way off in the future. And as wonderful and amazing as it was that he was bringing about the the, the line of David in this, we must take it another step, a step further, to Matthew 1, where the genealogy at the end of Ruth 4 reappears in the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. There we read Matthew 1, 1 through 6, Matthew starts with the genealogy of of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. There it is in verses 3 through 5, almost word for word, the very same genealogy that ends the book of Ruth. You see, in the book of Ruth, God wasn't just paving the way for King David to be born. God was paving the way for the King of Kings to be born, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing. God was at work through it all. Ultimately, then, Ruth isn't about David. It's about Jesus, the true redeemer and restorer of God's people. In Ruth 4, 14 and 15, the women of Bethlehem say to Ruth, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. It was all true. It was true. 
In Obed, God had provided Naomi with a type of redemption that would temporarily restore her life. Because of what God did in, in the marriage between Ruth and Boaz and the, and the blessing of Obed, the, the family line of Elimelech would continue in Israel. The land would be passed on to the next generation of his family. It wouldn't be morphed into another family. The, the, the name of Elimelech would continue but ultimately, Obed was, was a foretaste of what was to come for Naomi. He didn't redeem Naomi. Obed didn't redeem Naomi from her sin or restore her with eternal life. Naomi still needed full redemption. She still needed full restoration. And that is how the redemption in the book of Ruth points us forward to Christ and the gospel, to the redemption and the restoration that comes only in and through Jesus. Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Though Naomi didn't know it, God had much bigger plans for her and her family. He wasn't just redeeming and restoring her family name and land with Obed. God was at work through the events in the book of Ruth, making a way for Naomi, for you, for me, for everyone who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ to be redeemed and restored. Obed was a foretaste of what was to come for Naomi and for all those who trust in Jesus Christ. Naomi then was another link in the chain of God's great plan to send his son to redeem his people. This is a great thought for us, church, to, to close our time in Ruth on. Think of all the things that happened, in, and we, we're just given summaries, just, just a little quick brief overview of Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz's lives. We just get a little taste. They didn't know what God had in store through all of this. There was some brutal suffering. There was tragedy. There was heartache. There was a lot of faith. They needed to trust the Lord. Our God is at work then in our lives in such a way that, that things we're experiencing, things that he's calling us to do by faith, are not only for us who are alive today, but could very well be used by God for the good of not just this generation or the next generation, but future generations. He's not going to send a, another redeemer like he did Jesus Christ. That part is done, but God is still laying foundations in and through us for future generations. I love this thought. It's not just about us. It's about what God is going to do in and through the, the suffering that we endure by faith. The, the, the testimony of his people who hold fast to the word of God. We're not just holding to the word of God and proclaim the gospel for us and for the next generation, but for the future generations that come after until the Lord comes back. Think about the possibilities. And, and we know that God has so many purposes in, in our suffering and our trials. It's not just one thing. Not just one thing. There's so many things that God is doing. But, but think about, we, we might be used, our lives, this local church, to lay the foundation for a great missionary movement. We might be a part of what God is doing to raise up another Charles Spurgeon or Amy Carmichael. 
God, God has purposes beyond our knowledge. And so the book of Ruth doesn't say, hey, you're going to have all your answers. You, you just press on and, and, and struggle through whatever suffering you're, you're enduring right now. And, and, and you'll know before you die, Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, they didn't know that what God was doing in all of, all of this was bringing about full redemption, forgiveness of sins. The Lord Jesus Christ would come through this line, through the, all that he was doing. God was doing something great and glorious that they didn't see this side of heaven. Is it not going to be true that there are things like that for us, church? Suffering that you're enduring right now? Hardship? Cancer? Whatever it might be? That God is, is using, yes, to, to increase your joy in Jesus, to, to remind you that your hope is in Christ, not in, in this life. But might it be for your grandkids or your great-grandkids or your great-great-great-grandkids or, or for some, some distant niece or nephew that hears a story one day on their grandmother's lap about you trusting in the Lord and how God in his sovereign grace uses the, the, the hardships that we face, the struggles, the things that we're doing now as a church, the, the support of a local church and, and church planting in Albania, in Tirana, the, the, the sending out of missionaries to Africa and to Brazil, the ongoing support, that, that he's doing something way beyond us. I believe the book of Ruth tells us that's the case. And so we're encouraged to press on because the book of Ruth helps us see that God does have a wonderful plan for our lives, but it's not to live the American dream. His plan is to use us like he did Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz for his glory and for the good of others. So may our time together in the book of Ruth increase our joy in God as we consider the great and glorious reversal that God has brought about in our lives. For he has not left us this day without a redeemer, a restorer. He has given us his son, Jesus Christ. And he is at work in our lives for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book and the time that we have spent together in Ruth May the truths that we have mined, that you have graciously brought out of this book, shape us as a church so that our faith in you corporally increases, so that we are bold, walking by faith, not by sight, proclaiming the gospel to one another and to a, a world that is in desperate need of Jesus, of forgiveness of sins, of, of the understanding that you are a holy God and you have made a way, you have sent a redeemer. Let us not shrink back from these truths as we ponder the book of Ruth and how you use, you use people's lives, ordinary people's lives for your glory to, to bring about your perfect purposes. And Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of the blind, that we would see you bring about great fruit now and we would hear about great fruit later on, even in glory about how you're using our lives and our time together in corporate worship we thank you for your sovereign grace, the promise that you are a sovereign, big, glorious God that is working all things to the counsel of his will for your glory and our good. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.